I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. It's Tuesday, January 18th, 2022, the 363rd day of dystopia. Truth is the most convincing story that maps onto reality, and that's why the central narrative is falling apart. Fewer people are convinced by the story each day as they begin to see the central narrative for the fiction that it is. The time for allowing them to make us feel like strangers in our own country is over. We are Americans. The founders began the fight for human liberty and self-governance, and it's up to us to finish the job. This is the end game. Before we get started, if you are the type of person who is looking for the links to the articles I refer to on the podcast, or you just want to know more about what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can head to the info stream on my Telegram channel. You can find that by downloading the Telegram app and then using a browser or whatever to go to t.me slash I'm your moderator and everything is right there. Also, a huge thank you to everyone who has donated and helped support the show and helped my ability to keep surviving while doing the show. Truly appreciate that. The new website for donating to the show is ko-fi.com slash I'm your moderator. It's ko-fi.com slash I'm your moderator. And let's start off today with a piece from the great Conrad Black in American Greatness, speaking to further proof that we are indeed in the end game. The headline, who will follow Biden into no man's land? The media cheerleaders are taking to the boats as Biden's approval numbers sink. If Afghanistan was the worst disaster in American military history, not in terms of lives lost, but of profound incompetence in planning and executing a vital military operation, last week must stand as the single greatest one-week showcase of political miscalculation in modern American history. The administration had run on and propelled itself through the first year in office on the slogan Build Back Better, and particularly on the multi-trillion dollar cornucopia of expanded money supply scattered among the favored causes of the Sanders Democrats. The Democrats' most important legislative measures are the Freedom to Vote and John R. Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Acts to assure an almost indefinite Democratic hold on the federal government by banning voter identification rules, which are popular with all groups of voters, expanding mailed and harvested ballots, and restricting voter roll updates and signature validation. These measures passed their trial run when enacted in the swing states of the 2020 election, generally by state governors and courts, and not the state legislatures as required by the Constitution, supposedly to encourage voting despite the COVID pandemic. The Democrats have also made it clear that they intend to impose no restraints at all on the influx of illegal aliens, who could total six to eight million people for the current presidential term whom the Democrats propose to permit to vote without becoming citizens, which, like much of this protracted attempted coup d'etat, is unconstitutional, if anyone still cares. 
The tactical plan, though in the aftermath of its attempted application, it strains credulity that any person with an IQ as high as double figures could have imagined that it would be successful, was to attempt to observe the anniversary of the disturbances at the U.S. Capitol on January 6, 2021, in a manner so theatrical and evocative of ancient Americans' American concerns for political freedom that an ambiance could be confected in which the preposterous election rigging measures before the Senate now would sweep through on a tidal wave of misguided patriotism. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, never the most riveting of interviewees, had an extended session in Statuary Hall, fielding the softest questions the lickspittles of the Democratic national political media could devise. As Fox News commentator Laura Ingram always lacerating when reporting on the Democrats' sleazy antics, quipped on her nightly program, Pelosi was so boring that CNN lost 90% of its comparatively small audience and the statues got up and left. The feeble basis on which the Democrats have launched this coup is that the Republican attempt to strengthen the verification and the authenticity of ballots in a number of states that were deficient on these points in 2020 is an assault upon the right of African-Americans to vote. For those who have not acquired or forgotten how to translate the puerile shibboleths of the Biden spokespeople, this is why there was all the hysteria about, quote, Jim Crow on steroids. It is inconceivable that more than 1% of qualified American voters, whatever their pigmentation, could believe such bunk. Yet Joe Biden rose, as he thought, to the tactical requirements and went to Atlanta to say that those who sided with the Republicans in these matters preferred brutal 1960s arch-segregationist Alabama Sheriff Bull Connor to the late Congressman John Lewis, Alabama Governor George Wallace to Martin Luther King and the Confederate President Jefferson Davis to the emancipator of the slaves and co-founder of the Republican Party, Abraham Lincoln. This is political rhetoric and historical insight of a piece with rabidly partisan historian Douglas Brinkley comparing clearing trespassers out of the Capitol on January 6, 2021, with the liberation of the Nazi death camps in 1945, and Pelosi's assertion that the rather commodious enclosures set up by President Obama, but identified with President Trump in which the children abandoned by illegal immigrants enjoyed the best lodging and best nutrition of their lives were also reminiscent of Auschwitz. People who know nothing about history, but yet insist upon drawing absurdly ignorant and defamatory historical comparisons don't succeed in demonizing unexceptionable current political activity. They trivialize and render ambiguous, monstrous and soul destroying atrocities of other times and countries. Comparing Trump to Hitler makes Hitler seem less bad rather than making Trump seem worse. As last week sluggishly proceeded, it was a constant challenge to keep in mind that the subject of these frenzied verbal assaults was a series of measures conscientiously designed to assure that every eligible person could vote and that it would be much harder to steal elections than it was in the chronically uncertain conditions of November 2020. After the legislative rule changes necessary to enable Build Back Better and the vote rigging bills failed, the Supreme Court declared most applications of the administration's vaccine mandates to be unconstitutional. Nothing is working and the public is deserting in millions. It mustn't shortchange the other participants in last week's immense Democratic fiasco. Hillary Clinton, in a sequel to her tear-filled lamentation that she was unable to tell her mother in heaven that she had been elected president of the United States, implied, as Biden entered what appears to be a political death plunge, that she was going to have a try at it again. Whatever America longs for, it is not a return of the Clintons. 
Tom Friedman of the New York Times, as faithful and punctual in disgorging political absurdities as the famous old faithful geyser at Yellowstone National Park, hallucinated that the addition of U.S. Representative Liz Cheney as the Democrats vice presidential candidate would produce something akin to an Israeli grand coalition government. If Cheney joined Biden, Harris or Clinton, the effect would be to assure that the Democrats received practically no votes. If the presidential candidate was Senator Amy Klobuchar, who was also mentioned last week, they would merely have to struggle desperately to lose by fewer than 20 million votes. And truthfully, they very likely lost by 20 million votes in 2020. A barometer I have been watching to see when the cynicism of media would require it to put some blue water between themselves and this foundering regime they did so much to elect is the Wall Street Journal commentator and former Reagan speechwriter Peggy Noonan. It finally happened last week. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, a pretty inveterate never-Trumper, denounced Biden's Atlanta address in stern terms and Peggy got on board. It was a breaking point, and Biden had, quote, united the majority against him. In a famous phrase of Schiller's, late you come, but still you come. The media cheerleaders are taking to the boats. Kamala Harris, shaken by disparagements of her habit of responding to questions with peals of laughter and to revelations she was deemed to have negative charisma, handled the typical putty questions of a Democratic interviewer who asked if it was time to change strategies, given that even the leftish Quinnipiac poll had demoted Biden down to a 33% approval rating. She responded with the translucent Demosthenian gem that the administration has, quote, to continue to do what we are doing, and the time to do it is every day, end quote. If that doesn't rouse the Democratic Party and media out of the trenches and send them leaping up into no man's land to face the massed artillery and machine gun fire of the great majority of Americans who regard them as hopelessly incompetent placeholders, nothing will. And what I want everybody to be sure they take away from that piece is that this narrative about the collapse of Joe Biden and the Democrat Party is not some weird offshoot, not some random occurrence. What you are seeing is the forming of a society-wide mindset and consensus that whatever this thing is in the White House right now is not competent, it's not legitimate, and it does not have the best interests of the American people in mind. These narratives push in only one direction. The Democrats right now are trying to find stories that will change that narrative, which is why they are wagging the dog on military confrontations in Ukraine right now and will do so eventually in Taiwan vis-a-vis China. But beyond something extreme that could potentially change the political landscape, there's no coming back for them. People are not going to be awake to what this is and then arrive at a point where they think, oh, yeah, but maybe this is just the best we can do. That's not going to happen. People are leaving Joe Biden and the Democrat Party en masse. And when the media fully leaves, this thing will spiral out of control for them. And that is what we are seeing forming right now. And keeping their election takeover in mind, this 
is a post today from the Liberty Overwatch channel on Telegram, and it goes through some of the stuff that I've been talking about over the last two weeks. Dems sneak election fraud enshrinement legislation into popular NASA bill. In a tweet last Thursday, Representative Nicole Maliotakis from New York warned that Democrats have inserted election federalization legislation into a NASA leasing bill that has broad support. Democrats know they can't pass their radical voting rights bills on their own merit, so now they're disguising them as a NASA-related bill. This is just their latest scheme to pass universal mail-in ballots, same-day registration, and use $1.2 billion to fund their campaigns. Representative Kat Kamek from Florida sounded the alarm in a separate video. The Dems took, quote, two dangerous bills, H.R. 1 and H.R. 4, and created a love child and tucked all of this egregious language into the NASA bill, end quote. What's in the bill? Everything the Dems need to stay in power. The legislation eliminates voter ID to vote and to register to vote. So there would be no point in the process where a person would actually have to prove that they are the person they say they are and that they are a real, legal, eligible American citizen. And of course, they want to eliminate that problem because the language in the NASA bill also allows non-citizens to vote. It also creates a three-week election day, two weeks to vote and one week to count the vote. Florida counted its vote on election night and delivered the results. Florida is one of the largest, most populous states in America, but they still got the job done. Now, Florida's election by no means was clear of fraud, and Ron DeSantis should be doing more down there to expose the fraud and audit Florida's elections. And he's not, which is disappointing, which is something we should keep our eye on. But Florida still got their vote in that night. They got their results in. They didn't need extra time. Why does Pennsylvania or Michigan or Wisconsin or Washington or Arizona or California? They could all get their results in. They just don't want to. And why don't they want to? Well, they want two early weeks of voting so that they can know who's showing up to the polls and know who has not so that they can potentially fill out a fraudulent ballot in that person's name. And then they want a week on the back end so that they can fill in with illegal votes, whatever races need help. That is not only obviously what this is for in its intent. It is what we have seen them do. There is no convincing argument that this is a good thing that voters need, that this is going to help get more people to the polls. It's going to make it so that people are able to vote. It doesn't matter how many studies and statistics they show you. And that's the rationalization for this being good, but it's not good. And it's obviously not good. And you don't need a convoluted or complicated explanation to understand why you can simply know that given the proper incentives, flawed, frail, human Morality will not prevent everyone from cheating. People will cheat because they gain massive advantages in their lives and they will cheat because they are so convinced that their cause is so righteous and just that their votes really should matter more than other people's votes. 
They believe their ideas should matter more. They believe their speech should matter more. Why wouldn't they believe that their vote should matter more? And in fact, they do believe that. They believe exactly that. They believe that the ends are worth the means. They believe they are saving humanity. They believe they are solving racism. They believe that they are going to save the earth from the sun because the same scientists who tell them that masks and lockdowns and vaccines work to end the coronavirus have also told them that cow farts are going to destroy the earth so it's better if the little people, the small people, the normal people will just eat crickets. And those very, very smart, very serious experts who are giving the science to us are supported by politicians like Barack Obama, who started his presidency with a net worth that is relatively small and now is worth tens or hundreds of millions of dollars. He has a $12 million home on the coast. But don't worry. He's not worried about the sea level rising for himself. He's worried about it for you. That's how you know how good and moral he is. He's willing to sacrifice. He's willing to sacrifice his $12 million home on the coast. Yes, he's going to enjoy it for as long as it takes for the sea level to rise because we are being attacked by the sun. But after that, he's just going to have to sacrifice his home. And he's doing all of this. He's putting all these policies in place. He's supporting this massive wealth transfer from normal people to the world's wealthiest in order to save the planet from the sun for you. He's not going to be the one that benefits. But what else does this amazing NASA funding bill have? Oh, it mandates universal mail-in ballots. Isn't that amazing? 330 million mail-in ballots just sent out to everyone. In fact, it's probably a lot more than that because you have to send them out to illegal immigrants too. Remember, non-citizens would be allowed to vote. So maybe we get 335 million ballots or 340 million ballots. But in California, people can print their ballots out at their home. So maybe we have 400 million ballots and maybe in 2024, Hillary Clinton runs against Donald Trump and she wins 330 million to 70 million. Oh, wow. The most popular president of all time. And all she had to do was completely and totally rig the election. But Joe Biden couldn't have done that. That couldn't have already happened. No way. The NASA bill, the NASA leasing bill, also eliminates signature verification on absentee ballots. So you don't have to show an ID when you register or when you vote. And thank goodness, because if you had signature verification, what would they even be comparing the signatures to? Duh. It also makes it so that states cannot clean up their voter rolls. California has at least 
5 million additional registered voters above the number of eligible voters in California. And they would all be sent mail-in ballots. Except you wouldn't even have to send them mail-in ballots. Not that you wouldn't. You still totally would. But all those people who aren't actually in California can vote? Well, they can still print out their own ballots, even if they're dead, and they can vote. That's how open a process we need. And, you know, now that they're able to print out their own ballots, it doesn't really matter what kind of paper those ballots are on, because everybody has different printers and everybody has different paper. So you could never check anything about the actual physical ballot. It really wouldn't matter at all, would it? They can just put millions and millions and millions of whatever they want in there. And where do they get these crazy ideas? Man, they must have just thought them up after the 2020 election. I wonder what it was about the 2020 election that let them know that these sorts of measures were exactly what was needed to prevent the oncoming insurrection and coup and takeover and collapse of our democracy. Oh, it's because they did all those things in 2020, and now they're just trying to make them legal. Got it. You see, there were different types of paper used in other places, like Arizona. And Jovan Hutton Pulitzer's work is not all out in the public yet, but he certainly talked about it enough to let people know that there were a wide variety of paper types in that election, and there were not supposed to be. What does that mean about those votes? Does it mean that they were printed elsewhere by other people who weren't supposed to be printing ballots? Yes. In fact, that's exactly what it means. And when you see California legalize the printing of your own individual ballot at home on whatever paper you have around, it kind of gives you a hint about what sorts of things they want to be able to call legal in the future. These ideas didn't just fall off a tree. But what else do they want to do? They want to use taxpayer funding to finance their political campaigns. And so this NASA bill has passed through the House and now it's headed to the Senate. And they have used a workaround to bypass the filibuster about bringing this bill to the floor. So now they're just going to have open debate about this bill in the Senate. They will still have to bypass the filibuster somehow to get this bill passed. But as I said a week or two ago, whenever this first came up, it seemed to me like what they were doing was trying to hide this so that they could pressure Republican senators into passing the NASA funding bill because, you know, everybody wants the funding for space and science. So we must pass the NASA bill, even if it destroys our elections in the process. And you can imagine people like Mitt Romney stepping up and saying, yes, it is so important that we fund this NASA bill. Oh, the voting stuff. Those are just some little Democrat pet projects here and there. But the real important thing is this NASA funding bill. And so you get Mitch on and then you get Murkowski on and Collins and Tom Barrasso or John Barrasso because Tom Barrasso was a goalie for the Penguins in the 90s. And that's what I was thinking of. And you get the old corrupt guys like Richard Burr and John Cornyn. And then you get the little corrupt guys like little Ben Sass. 
And then all of a sudden, the Uniparty has voted the new election regulations into law. And, you know, then it would go to the Supreme Court because an election takeover by a centralized federal government is explicitly antithetical to what it says in the Constitution. And you can hope that the court would decide correctly on this. But the real point is that they would want this bill to carry on through the 2022 election before it was overturned, just like we're seeing around the country. For instance, in Wisconsin, as we talked about last week, a judge ruled that all the ballots delivered through ballot drop boxes were illegal. Does it change the result of the 2020 election? Well, only in a normal world. In this world, we will have our media and our politicians tell us that there's just simply nothing they can do about that. And yes, at this point, literally over half a million votes in Wisconsin have been deemed illegal by now between the voters of indefinitely confined status who were not eligible to list that on their ballot and the number of votes and ballots that were delivered via Mark Zuckerberg's drop boxes. That is a half a million ballots in one state. Okay. And not even a particularly big state, just a medium state. So when people are like, you can't say Donald Trump won by 20 million. Really? Well, Donald Trump gained 12 million over 2016. Okay. Joe Biden, if we are to believe the numbers, gained 15 million over 2016, what Hillary was able to achieve. So Trump didn't get 12 million fake votes that the system just inserted for him. No one in the world believes that. And we know from the numbers of people who went out and voted in person without even talking about the rampant videos of people throwing away and burning Trump ballots. We know that Trump gained 12 million. So if Biden gained 15 and Trump's 12 million were actual American citizens, maybe he brought a few million new voters into the process. I suppose that's possible. But most of the rest of those voters were people who were politically involved prior and switched from the Democrat candidate to Donald Trump. So how many votes did the Democrat Communist Party create? Again, in David Pluff's book about how to rig the election and beat Donald Trump, he talked about the Democrats needing, needing to get 65 to 70 million votes to beat Donald Trump. So even if somehow, somehow, through legitimate means, Democrats were able to achieve his outer limit, his outer hopeful, optimistic limit, there would still be 11 million fake votes in there. But the truth is they came nowhere near his optimistic limit because there was no reason for people to be optimistic about Joe Biden. The people who hated Donald Trump went out and voted against Donald Trump. Everybody knows that. But we didn't have half the country hating Donald Trump. If that was the case, who would he have gained the 12 million votes from? So, yeah, there are tens of millions of fake votes on the Democrat side. And if you look at the work of someone like Seth Keschel, you can have a pretty good idea 
of where those fraudulent votes came from and how many there are. And I imagine, and I imagine that Seth Keschel would agree with this, but I imagine that his numbers are on the low end of things because they take into account registration trends and the registration trends themselves should not be trusted for multiple cycles. Now, there were like a hundred plus organizations who had ballot access. I believe it was in Pennsylvania. It might have been Michigan, but states under Democratic rule formed public private partnerships with outside organizations so that those outside organizations had access to the state voter registries and they would push all sorts of new registrations into the registry. And that was the database from which they could pull names to put on illegal fraudulent ballots. And that registration thing has been happening for a long time. So the trends he's working with are definitionally understanding that skewed. And I think that he would be on board with that. I should ask him. This is from uh, the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel yesterday. Speaking of Wisconsin, boom segue. Gableman subpoenas voting machine companies in 2020 review. This is Molly Beck and Patrick Marley. Now, remember. This is the propaganda take on what actually happened. What actually happened is that Michael Gableman is going full speed ahead. Assembly Republicans review of the 2020 election has expanded outside of Wisconsin with two subpoenas to two companies that manufacture voting machines and software. Former Supreme Court Justice Michael Gableman in December issued orders to Colorado-based Dominion Voting Systems and Electronic Systems and Software of Nebraska, that's ES&S, seeking records related to the location of the company's voting machines in Wisconsin during the primary and general elections in 2020. Gableman also seeks information about staff members who worked on Wisconsin machines or communicated with anyone in Wisconsin during that period. Gableman's subpoenas, first reported by Wisconsin Politics, WIS politics, I guess, demand company officials produce the requested documents later this month and order them to testify in private at his rented office space in Brookfield. Gableman set a series of deadlines to receive the documents and testimony with the earliest on Wednesday. Now, I want to point something out to you, okay? Because you will see later in this article that the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel and its writers are trying to discredit the Gableman investigation. They're trying to give the readers the illusion that this investigation is somehow illegitimate or that it's not really happening at all. And they hint at that in this segment, right? They say the person, they say they want the testimony in private as if there's something untoward about that. You know, like if somebody's testifying and doing discovery in a murder trial, They don't give a public hearing while they're taking the deposition. There's nothing unusual whatsoever about testimony being delivered in private in someone's office. They're just scared of what that would mean for them. They want to be able to use a public testimony as proof that the person testifying was right. And also, so everybody else knows what that person said. Otherwise, if it's in private, then only Gableman knows what's been said. And the other people testifying do not know what everyone else has said. 
It also would then allow him to protect whistleblowers, for instance. They also try to discredit him by saying he has a rented office space as if he's just in a strip mall and he's some loser doing this like red string map of all the election conspiracy theories like the the screenshot meme from Always Sunny in Philadelphia. I mean, this is ridiculous. It is unclear what authority Gableman and Assembly Republicans have to demand information from out-of-state entities. They have no easy way to get the companies to comply with their subpoenas since neither is based in Wisconsin. They do do business in Wisconsin, though, quite obviously. Multiple phone calls to Gableman and a spokeswoman for Assembly Speaker Robin Voss were not returned Friday. Officials with Dominion and ESNS also did not respond to questions from the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. Voss hired Gableman and gave him a $676,000 taxpayer-funded budget to review the outcome of the 2020 election and how the election was administered. The effort was launched as former President Donald Trump put pressure on Voss and other Republican legislative leaders in Wisconsin to do more to support his false claim that he was the winner of the 2020 election. But again, they are trying to tie Gableman to Donald Trump Via Robin Voss. Okay. Gableman is investigating independently. They're trying to make it seem like there is no way that Michael Gableman could retain any objectivity and actually prosecute this case in a true and faithful way according to the relevant law. And they do this while defending the voting machine companies saying that the only people who should be allowed to audit the machines are the people who are certified by those companies to audit the machines and by the state, the state that is also protecting the voting companies. They don't want anyone independent trying to find out what happened. They will take the word of those voting machine companies that they did nothing wrong. And they'll do this even after watching video of Eric Coomer Talk about how they could rig elections using those machines after hearing people like Kamala Harris herself talk about how those machines could be hacked and rigged. But no, Michael Gableman is the biased one. Michael Gableman is doing Trump's bidding because he's in the Trump call. Wherever Trump says something, everybody just does whatever they say. It's amazing that these people can even look themselves in the mirror at night with the level of ignorance and dishonesty they display on a daily basis. And of course, now we get into the everybody knows section. President Joe Biden beat Trump by about 21,000 votes in Wisconsin, a result that has been confirmed by recounts paid for by Trump. Uh, Are you sure about that? multiple court rulings and a statewide audit that revealed no widespread problems that could change the election's outcome. Not true. Okay. Yes. The candidate has to pay for the recount when they request one. They're trying to make it seem like Donald Trump put a whole scheme together on how the election was going to be examined And he still failed. That's not what happened at all. They went through their normal substandard election recount and that's it. They set the laws in place so that they can find ways around the laws. 
They build the loopholes into the legislation. Now, in 2022, they don't even hide it anymore. Okay? Again, that's what we just talked about. Right now, they're trying to put these voting regulations into a NASA bill. That's how desperate they are to exploit the system. Because otherwise, people see what America actually believes. And America doesn't want anything to do with the Democrat Party. They need to cheat to have any chance to win. They need to cheat just to make sure that their narrative can hold up a little longer. That's how desperate they are to cheat. So they are writing election loopholes that allow them to cheat into law in front of the entire public. But we are meant to believe that they hadn't already done that in states to allow certain rigging in multiple different ways in multiple different states. This has always been how it's been. It's just exposed now. Gableman was hired in June 2021 by Voss with the expectation he would wrap up his review by fall. Voss later extended his deadline to the end of 2021 and has now negotiated an extension to Gableman's contract. Voss said last week he wanted recommendations from Gableman by the end of February, but a spokesman for Gableman told Wisp Politics last week there is no way the review will wrap up by then. With a subpoena to Dominion, Gableman is targeting a company that has been at the center for many conspiracy theories advanced by Trump and his allies in the days and weeks following Trump's defeat. The company's machines are not used in Milwaukee, Madison, and other cities with heavy concentrations of Democratic voters that Gableman has been focused on. They don't mention whether or not ES&S was used there, though. Isn't that strange? Dominion filed a series of defamation lawsuits last year against Trump allies over spreading false claims that the company's machines changed the true outcome of the election by flipping votes for Trump to Biden's column. But filing a lawsuit is not winning a lawsuit, and they have yet to contest those lawsuits. They have yet to prove their claims, and there is no way they can prove their claims because to do that, they would have to show evidence that that didn't happen. But it did happen. So there's no evidence. The subpoenas to voting machine companies were dated December 28th. The same day, Gableman sent a raft of new subpoenas to the state elections commission and officials in the state's five largest cities. The cities provided Gableman with numerous documents on Thursday and Friday, but said in some cases he had asked for too much. Ah, oh, that's too bad. Attorneys for Green Bay and Madison sent him pointed letters saying they would not give him the birth dates or social security numbers of voters in response to his demand for all information about voters held by their computer systems. And you can see what that is. Okay. They want to give some sort of narrative help to their side. So they are going to try to claim that Michael Gableman is studying the votes and wanting the names and security numbers so that he can somehow compile a list of people or do something untoward with their information. They also questioned whether Gableman had the authority to act on behalf of the Assembly Elections Committee, given that his contract with the state was set to expire at the end of last year. Oh, I guess that doesn't matter anymore, does it? Because it was extended, and it sounds like it's going to get extended again. But thank goodness the uh, Milwaukee Journal Sentinel let us know that that's how they responded to his requests. Well, it doesn't work, but that's how they responded. He's illegitimate. Trust us, he's illegitimate. 
We respectfully request that you provide written evidence of your continued and current appointment by the Wisconsin State Assembly as legal counsel or an agent authorized to act on behalf of the committee. Madison City Attorney Michael Haas wrote in a Friday letter to Gableman. Gableman has been meeting with partisans and election conspiracy theorists as he has conducted his work. In December, he told the Chippewa County Republican Party that he has seen no signs that Wisconsin's voting machines were hacked, but believed they were vulnerable to hacks. Now, does he have evidence about the Wisconsin election machines yet? No, that's why he's asking for it. So how would he have seen that evidence? These people are so stupid and they are trusting that their readership is so stupid. And by so stupid, I mean, not only low IQ, but I also mean totally asleep and totally blind to obvious truth in front of them. They want to assume the public is as ignorant and as complicit as they are. They are so opposed to the other idea being true that they will settle for ideas this dumb. His comments come two months after he told a reporter he did not have an understanding of how elections work. Oh, really? Where is the quote? Also, how is that relevant to him being able to recognize fraud if he can also look at the statutes, they always use this how elections work thing. That is very similar to what we were talking about yesterday with the census stuff. The bureaucracy has a way that they do it. Oh, this is just the way we do it. Oh, he doesn't know about the way we do it. Oh, yeah. He just wants illegal immigrants left off the census that determines congressional districts and electoral votes because he doesn't know how we do it. That's what they're saying. They have a way of doing it. And unless someone from the outside understands their way of doing it. Oh, well, yeah. Okay. Well, if you don't understand how we do it, I can see why you'd think that there were things that were wrong, you know, just because of the laws and morality. But you got to understand once you know how we do it. Well, then you'll just see that that's how we do it. And their readership claps and drools and says, yeah, I'm convinced. And that's just Keith Olbermann. Now, how bad is it for Democrats? It's this bad. A 27th House Democrat has announced that he will not be running this fall. That is an enormous number that is growing every week, and we should be nothing but happy about that. Now, let's move to COVID. This article is from the Wall Street Journal yesterday. The headline, CDC director aims to improve COVID-19 messaging data collection. One year into her tenure as director of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, Rochelle Walensky acknowledged she hasn't been clear enough with the American public. She says the pandemic threw curveballs that she should have anticipated. She thinks she should have made it clearer to the public that new rules and guidelines were subject to change if the nature of the fight against COVID-19 shifted again. I think that what I have not conveyed is the uncertainty in a lot of these situations, Dr. Walensky said in an interview with the Wall Street Journal. The CDC director has come under fire from public health experts for the way she has communicated pandemic guidelines from mask wearing to isolation requirements. Some Biden administration officials said the CDC's explanations of new and amended guidelines can sometimes be hard to grasp. Oh, yeah, that's the problem. The problem is not that they are entirely unrelated to any actual science that they are willing to explain. The problem is not that they have 
allowed, for instance, the teachers unions to set CDC policy. The problem is she's just not quite communicating that these regulations might someday change based on how the science evolves. Dr. Walensky said she is committed to communicating CDC policy more clearly. She is being coached by a media consultant and plans to hold more media briefings in the coming months, separate from her appearances with the White House COVID-19 response team. Some public health experts have said such briefings would help highlight the CDC's role as a scientific voice, independent of politics. Wow. Recent changes to the CDC's guidelines for people infected with COVID-19 were confusing and flawed. Some public health experts have said. The CDC on December 27th cut in half the time infected persons need to isolate after testing positive as long as they didn't have symptoms or their symptoms had improved. But ending isolation after five days without a negative COVID-19 test risked putting people who were still contagious back into contact with others, some public health experts said. It's promoting the potential for more spread, said Eric Topol director of the Scripps Research Translational Institute in La Jolla, California. You got that? So some health experts, mostly the COVID fear mongers, believe that it's very risky for the CDC to change their guidelines. You got that? So they are simultaneously an objective voice of science, but also subject to the doubts of health experts, but only the doubts of health experts saying the right thing. You got to understand. The CDC on January 4th updated the guidelines, adding new instructions for people who want to test before leaving isolation. However, the agency stopped short of saying that people should get a test before ending isolation, spurring more confusion. Dr. Walensky said the isolation guidelines were based on more than 100 papers about the risks presented by variants, including Alpha and Delta, drawing on research conducted before Omicron had spread across the world. We felt the need to take action before we had Omicron specific data, she said. The recommendations also took into account reports from healthcare facilities and pharmacies whose staff were calling in sick and unable to work or dispense medications, she said. The agency decided to add language about testing after it became clear to Dr. Walensky and other officials that people wanted guidance on using rapid tests to check whether they might still be infectious, she said. The CDC felt it needed to give people guidance on how to interpret such tests. Rapid tests authorized by the FDA weren't intended for testing out of isolation, she said. Negative rapid tests are a better barometer of infectiousness than when they are conducted repeatedly over several days, she said. You got that? So if it's negative, you should still think it's positive and then take another one. And if it's still negative, you should still think it's positive until you take at least one or two or three more or whatever. You got it? It's science. Don't you understand? Except the rapid tests don't work. And now there's like a new trend on social media where previously child-brained Biden voters are using their rapid tests to test things like orange juice and finding out their orange juice is COVID positive. Wow. What does it say more about your orange juice or your COVID test? Except we know the tests don't work. So how did they get the whole pandemic, right? Oh, man. The test can't differentiate between COVID and the flu or even the common cold. <laughs> but 830,000 people have died from COVID. Clowns. Honestly, man.
You know, one of the funniest things about my experience in Hollywood in 2020 was how I was clearly explaining how they were generating cases constantly. And yet midwits who were former lawyers and now wannabe tech and finance bros were telling me that, oh, you you just your intellect can't handle how important these case numbers are. Oh, yeah. Yeah, buddy. That's the problem. That was always my problem. If you're positive, you should probably stay at home, she said. Oh, just probably, right? Just probably stay at home if you're positive. But a negative, that doesn't mean you're not contagious. And we needed to be very clear about that. All right. Okay, Rochelle, if I was your media trainer, the first thing that I would prioritize in our training would be me telling you to stop saying provably stupid things. That would be my number one. After that, you probably just need to resign from your job because there is actually no hope. You can either only say stupid things to achieve the ends that you wish to achieve, or you can say true things and you will not have a job anymore. If you're positive, you should probably stay at home. Okay. If you're positive, you should probably stay at home which means that you don't have to stay at home. You just probably should. But if you're negative, well, if you're negative, that doesn't mean you're not contagious. So if you're negative, you should probably stay at home. See how this works? It's genius. If you have the brain of a child. Dr. Walensky says she intends to address gaps in national collection of public health data. Unlike the UK or Israel, which have centralized health data systems, the CDC gets data from state and local hospital systems, and collection is often inconsistent and slow. Public health experts have said a lack of data has hindered the response to the Delta and Omicron waves in the past year. And you see what they did there? What they need is centralized data. It's because of the layers of data reporting that they can't give you an accurate picture of the coronavirus. And what they want to do, of course, is centralize all the data so that they can have full control over all the data. But in this admission, they are saying that the way we have retrieved data about the very deadly pandemic for two years has been so obviously inefficient that it really can't be used. And that's why we shouldn't be in trouble for having given you bad data so many times. We have decades of underinvestment in information systems, said Tom Frieden, the CDC's director from 2009 to 2017. Dr. Frieden is now president of Resolve to Save Lives, a nonprofit initiative that works on strengthening epidemic preparedness. Oh, what a hero. Dr. Walensky said she has the Biden administration's support to broaden the CDC's data collection efforts. We never had the resources that we do now to be able to do that, she said. Oh, she is such an expert. Fewer than 200 health facilities across the U.S. had their electronic health records linked to CDC data collection systems before the pandemic, Dr. Walensky said. At the start of the pandemic, some states that were unable to electronically report positive COVID-19 cases had to fax PCR results to the CDC, she said. <laughs> it's like, how does it even get there? Some states were entering 
positive results first because they didn't have the capacity to enter all the negative ones, she said. So the CDC initially received a skewed view of what fraction of the population was positive. You got that? So they were overestimating the risk completely. (laughs) Thank goodness they're letting us know now. Tens of thousands of facilities have upgraded their electronic record keeping during the pandemic, in part using federal funding, she said. There's still a long way to go, Dr. Walensky said. Modernizing public health data infrastructure for the federal government and 3,050 state and local health departments would cost about $30 billion over 10 years. The nonprofit Healthcare Information and Management Systems Society said recently, oh, they did a study. This will not end with COVID, Dr. Walensky said. This is not a one and done effort. And just to be clear about what's happening here, she is saying that, yes, the job we have done is entirely competent. And it's quite possible that the way we have communicated as part of our job has been even worse than incompetent. But what we need to fix it is $30 billion for our data systems. Data systems cost $30 billion. Otherwise, well, we might run into these problems when the next pandemic occurs. And yes, I mean, we have no choice but to end COVID. But did you hear that there is a Marburg thing going on in China right now? And they definitely didn't create that one. And they're definitely not going to stage events at the Olympics that will lead the whole world into believing that we have a brand new pandemic. So we need to start all over again. And we definitely need mail-in ballots for the 2022 election. And everyone knows it. Yeah, yeah. And while we're on the subject of terrible statistical reporting, let's go to Uncover DC. This is from yesterday, Wendy Strauch Mahoney. HHS drops reporting of daily COVID-19 deaths and adds pediatric reporting guidelines. The Department of Health and Human Services has made changes in hospital guidelines for reporting on January 6th, which could add to confusion over the interpretation of COVID-19 data for children. Adding multiple entries for pediatric inpatient and ICU beds, the new pediatric reporting requirements could be subject to misinterpretation. The HHS Protect System is apparently also concurrently dropping the requirement that America's hospitals report daily COVID-19 deaths. This uncoupling of data could drive misinterpretation of data and therefore unnecessary worry over the way COVID-19 affects children. HHS requires that the changes be made by February 2nd, 2022. The Trump administration asked that data be directly reported to HHS in the summer of 2020. Steve Murch, a Harvard MBA graduate and entrepreneur, states in his January 16th data analysis of the HHS changes that in the current environment, new reporting guidelines could easily show up in the media or from officials in the form of unnecessary alarm. The net result of these changes is that we will likely soon see media reports along the lines of pediatric COVID hospitalizations rise alarmingly and pediatric ICU beds near capacity. When the underlying truth is that worrisome COVID among our youngest adults has been and remains extremely low at the level we should worry about seasonal influenza. And if you want to see some of the underlying documentation, go to Uncover DC, find the article. They have it in here, but me reading it would be pointless. Notably, as an aside, other data point removals are also puzzling. Why is HHS dropping data on ventilators and staffing? It is known that those on ventilators due to COVID-19 illness have a higher risk of death. Again, 
hospital protocol causing death, usually from remdesivir first. Therefore, HHS is removing another indicator of severe illness that could provide clues about what is going on in hospitals. Staffing in hospitals may be significantly impacted by vaccination status. Why now are staffing data no longer important? The reporting changes are also highlighted in the data element table shown on pages 6 through 24. The primary driver for the pediatric reporting changes seems to stress the availability of beds for children in hospitals and reporting of laboratory-confirmed COVID-19 in children, as detailed in Appendix B on pages 30 through 38. Here, HHS breaks pediatric admissions data into four groups. The reporting looks at laboratory confirmed COVID-19 cases, but doesn't seem to indicate the reasons for the hospitalization clearly. In other words, there is no language specifying that a child's hospitalization is directly related to disease from COVID-19. Rather, it seems to stress only, quote, how pediatric admissions compare to adults, end quote. It is perplexing to see HHS suddenly adding so many pediatric data points while also dropping the reporting of deaths, especially in the current climate of chaotic government messaging and fear over the virus. And you would expect a government who wants to maintain the status of societal fear to be doing things exactly like this. Deaths are dropping just down to nothing, partly because of the fact that Omicron is not remotely a severe disease and partly because people are beginning to understand and want to know the difference between death and illness from COVID and death and illness with COVID, something people like me have been saying since April 2020 and were ignored and called conspiracy theorists and censored on social media and banned. But the COVID fearmongers likely want to be able to say that taking masks off children in school and having schools open for in-person learning is the cause of this enormous spike in childhood illness that doesn't exist. There are places in the world that did not close their schools at all. School outbreaks are few and far between. You would be hard-pressed to actually find some. Children giving COVID to other children or teachers and teachers giving COVID to other teachers or children, that's not a thing that has been a problem anywhere throughout any of this time. And if they are all spreading Omicron, hey, sorry, I know you're not allowed to say this because it's a very deadly illness, but that's good because they can all become immune that way. Isn't it crazy that we have reached a point where knowing that we can achieve strong and lasting immunity through infection with a harmless virus is looked at as somehow an evil medical experiment while forcing children to be injected with a harmful experimental gene therapy that very well could injure their little hearts and leave them sterile throughout their entire lives is seen as a responsible parenting and public health technique. That's where we are right now. So the undercover DC piece has a big section about the actual numbers and the difference by age, but I want to jump down to the end here. COVID-19 reporting has always been a nightmare. The reporting of COVID-19 deaths has always been difficult to parse. Delays in reporting have been an issue from the beginning. 
Notably, state and local health departments are still reporting death counts to the CDC so that data can be found. Language at the beginning of the HHS announcement explains, we recognize that some healthcare systems choose to report for all facilities in their network from a central corporate location. We also recognize that many states currently collect this information from the hospitals. Therefore, hospitals may be relieved from reporting directly to the federal government if they receive a written release from the state indicating that the state is certified and will collect data from the hospitals and take over the hospital's federal reporting responsibilities. STLT partners may have unique reporting requirements either related to or independent of the federal reporting requirements. Facilities are encouraged to work with their relevant STLT partners to ensure complete reporting. And again, this is something that I used to talk about continuously throughout the summer and fall of 2020. There were actual statisticians and data analysts on Twitter doing work on the death reporting. And you could see consistently that the deaths that were being reported day to day by the media, the ones that they were shooting up onto your television 24 hours a day were actually data from anywhere between a week and three weeks and three months old. Okay. So, so let's think about the broader picture of the virus at the beginning, right? What happened in blue states? Those states put sick patients into nursing homes. We know that 40%, 50% of the deaths over that period in those states, some places even higher, were directly from nursing homes. We also know that those states laundered their data to make the deaths in nursing homes look as though there were fewer than there were. So what happened? We had a whole spate of nursing home deaths at the beginning in blue states. And then those numbers were pushed out gradually over the next weeks and months and media would just report whatever came in and they wouldn't say, well, yeah, there's uh, 1200 deaths reported today, but 900 of them were more than a month old. So they were never giving the public a proper understanding of the actual pace of death due to the coronavirus at any time. And of course, they didn't separate from coronavirus or with coronavirus. They just reported the deaths whenever they came in. Yeah, sure. All 50,000 or 60,000 or whatever it was, nursing home deaths in New York state could have happened within a three or four week span. But we're just going to push them out to you gradually because we wouldn't want anyone to see that 40,000 deaths had happened in New York over the course of two or three weeks and that they were all in nursing homes, well, that would have really upset the narrative. Back to the article. However, some states like Florida seem to be dropping real-time reporting data on deaths and can now no longer rely on HHS for COVID-19 related deaths. So to understand the data from Florida, one would need to look at inferred data from the CDC to attempt to understand the number of COVID-19 deaths in Florida. And data analysts actually do this work. You can look at it and you can try to understand it. You just have to do the work. And people like me and many others were actually doing that work when we were talking about COVID in the summer of 2020. We weren't spreading conspiracy theories. We weren't just believing headlines we saw. We were spending our days trying to understand exactly what happened and why. And that is why people like me have been right about things like masks not working, lockdowns not working, vaccines not working, vaccines being dangerous. We were actually paying attention. Turns out that's all you have to do. You have to know how to look for information and you have to pay attention. And by the way, 
if you are having conversations with friends or family or whatever, and they are saying, well, I don't understand how you get your information, or I don't understand why you think this information is better than the information I get. I actually wrote about this. I, I wrote a response uh, to an email from my, my aunt, who I think was trying to understand on some level why I had come to the conclusions I've come to. And so I took my time. It took me actually a couple of hours because I wanted to be really thorough. All of that is now on my Substack. I'm your moderator.substack.com. You can read that and you can see how I get information, how I analyze information and why I do it the way I do it. That is all in that article on the Substack. We are sorely in need of consistent real-time data on COVID-19 if public policy on the matter is to be respected. The changes in reporting are puzzling if transparency is truly a priority. Policies that dictate lockdowns, masks, vaccines, and other draconian measures should be as well-grounded and accurate real-time data as possible. Most importantly, we owe it to our children who have now been subjected to two years of masks, virtual learning, and quarantines to provide accurate information on their level of risk and or death. Reporting like this may leave too much room for fear and misinformation. And the fact that it leaves room for fear and misinformation after two years of fear and misinformation and the recognition that most of the response has been an absolute abomination should tell you that they are not trying to correct a flawed system. What they are trying to do is find more spaces for fear and misinformation to exist. And again, just like election law, they write the rules to create loopholes that benefit their agenda. Now, let's go to Zero Hedge. This is authored by Peter Svab via the Epic Times. It's a guest post. Health departments in several states confirmed to the Epic Times that they are looking into a steep surge in the mortality rate for people aged 18 to 49 in 2021, a majority of which are not linked to COVID. Okay. 18 to 49 adults who are in the prime of their life and health, a steep surge in deaths among 18 to 49 year olds, not linked to COVID. Deaths among people aged 18 to 49 increased more than 40% in the 12 months ending October 2021, compared to the same period in 2018-2019 before the pandemic, according to an analysis by the Epoch Times of death certificate data from the CDC. The agency doesn't yet have full 2021 figures as death certificate data has a lag of up to eight weeks or more. The surge differed greatly from state to state, with the most dramatic increase in young to middle-aged deaths in the South, Midwest, and the West Coast, while the Northeastern states generally saw much milder spikes. Public health authorities in several states with some of the largest increases are examining the issue. Texas saw the 18 to 49 age mortality jump 61%, the second highest increase in the country. Of that, less than 58% was attributed to COVID-19. Our Center for Health Statistics is looking at the data, said Chris Van Dusen, the head of media relations at the Texas Department of State Health Services via email. We'll get back to you. Florida, which saw an increase of 51 percent, 48 percent of that attributed to COVID-19, is also probing the matter. I'm looking into it to see if there is some sort of correlation causation, said Jeremy Redfern, spokesman for the Florida Department of Health via email. Nevada saw the highest increase, 65%, of which just 36% was attributed to COVID-19. 
Shannon Litz, a public information officer at the Nevada Department of Health and Human Services, said via email she passed on questions regarding the mortality spike to the agency's Office of Analytics for review. The District of Columbia experienced a 72% hike, none of it attributed to COVID-19. Robert Mayfield, spokesman for D.C. Health's authority, referred Epic Times to the district's Office of Chief Medical Examiner, which suggested it lacked the expertise to analyze the phenomenon. OCME does not currently have an epidemiologist. The position is being advertised, so it has no present ability to analyze the data, said the office's spokesman Rodney Adams via email. Arizona recorded a 57% increase, 37% of which was attributed to COVID. Arizona's Department of Health Services couldn't respond to questions regarding the issue because its data is, quote, not yet finalized, said Tom Herman, the agency's public information officer via email. Other states with some of the highest increases were Tennessee, 57 percent up, 33 percent to covid. California, 55 percent up, 42 to covid. New Mexico, 52 percent up, 33 to covid. Louisiana, 51 percent up, 32 to covid. None of their health authorities responded to quests, requests for comments. The mortality surge seemed to be significantly milder in the northeast. New Hampshire saw no increase. Massachusetts had only a 13 percent spike. New York, one of the worst hit by the pandemic in the region, was up 29%, 30% of it attributed to COVID. CDC data on the causes of those excess deaths aren't yet available for 2021, aside from those involving COVID-19, pneumonia, and influenza. There were close to 6,000 excess pneumonia deaths that didn't involve COVID-19 in the 18 to 49 age group in the 12 months ending October 2021. Influenza was only involved in 50 deaths in this age group, down from 550 in the same period pre-pandemic. Well, that's mysterious. The flu death count didn't exclude those that also involved COVID-19 or pneumonia, the CDC noted. A part of the surge could be likely blamed on drug overdoses, which increased to more than 101,000 in the 12 months ending June 2021 from about 72,000 in 2019, the CDC estimated. About two-thirds of those deaths involve synthetic opioids such as fentanyl that are often smuggled to the United States from China via Mexico. And that's amazing, isn't it? 30,000 additional overdose deaths over 12 months, two-thirds, 20,000 of those due to synthetic fentanyl smuggled into the United States through the southern border. But there's no problem down there. <laughs> there's no problem whatsoever. And you're racist if you say that there was. For those aged 50 to 84, mortality increased more than 27%, representing more than 470,000 excess deaths. Some 77% of the deaths had COVID-19 marked on the death certificate as the cause or a contributing factor. For those 85 or older, mortality increased about 12%, with more than 100,000 excess deaths. There were more than 130,000 COVID-related deaths in this group, indicating these seniors were less likely to die of a non-COVID-related cause from November 2020 to October 2021 than during the same period of 2018 to 2019. Comparing 2020 to 2019, mortality increased some 24% for those aged 18 to 49, with less than a third of those excess deaths involving COVID-19. For those aged 50 to 84, mortality increased less than 20%, with over 70% of that involving COVID-19. For those even older, mortality jumped about 16%, with nearly 90% of it involving COVID. For those under 18, mortality decreased about 0.4% in 2020 compared to 2019. 
In the 12 months ending October 2021, it fell some 3.3% compared to the same period in 2018-2019. And I know the episode's going long, but I want to hit one more thing. This is from Blaze Media Today. U.S. airlines issue dire warning ahead of 5G rollout. To be blunt, the nation's commerce will grind to a halt. As telecommunications giants Verizon and AT&T prepare to roll out their hotly anticipated new 5G service on Wednesday, major U.S. airlines are warning that the launch will result in catastrophic disruption for the aviation industry. In a letter sent Monday to Biden administration officials, a group of airline CEOs stressed that the forthcoming C-band 5G deployment would ground, quote, huge swaths, end quote, of the U.S. fleet and could, quote, potentially strand tens of thousands of Americans overseas. Unless our major hubs are cleared to fly, the vast majority of the traveling and shipping public will essentially be grounded, they said in the letter viewed by NBC News. The airline executive stated plainly that the rollout could be accompanied by an aviation crisis the likes of which the country has never seen. To be blunt, the nation's commerce will grind to a halt, they stated plainly. The letter was reportedly signed by the CEOs of American Airlines, United Airlines, Delta Airlines, Southwest Airlines, and JetBlue, as well as by leaders of shipping companies UPS and FedEx. Fifth-generation wireless technology, simply known as 5G, is expected to deliver ultra-fast internet speeds, massive capacity, and increased connectivity to users. However, the chief executives argued that, as it stands, 5G would interfere with safety equipment that pilots rely on to take off and land in inclement weather. CNBC noted that the Federal Aviation Administration has indeed warned that potential interference could affect sensitive airplane instruments, such as altimeters, which measure the distance from the bottom of an aircraft to the ground during low visibility operations. As of Sunday, the FAA had only cleared an estimated 45% of the U.S. commercial airplane fleet to perform low visibility landings at airports where the 5G service would be deployed. This means that on a day like yesterday, more than 1,100 flights and 100,000 passengers would be subjected to cancellations, diversions, or delays, the CEOs cautioned in the letter, adding, immediate intervention is needed to avoid significant operational disruption to air passengers, shippers, supply chain, and delivery of needed medical supplies. Where is Pete Buttigieg? The letter was sent to Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg. National Economic Council Director Brian Deese, Federal Aviation Administration Administrator Stephen Dixon, and Federal Communications Commission Chairwoman Jessica Rosenworcel. As a way to avoid catastrophe, the airline CEOs urged that the rollout be delayed once again to give more time for the aviation industry to make necessary adjustments. Earlier this month, Verizon and AT&T agreed to delay the launch from January 5th until January 19th at Buttigieg's request. Airline leaders also suggested the service be rolled out everywhere in the country except within the approximate two miles of airport runways at affected airports. This will allow 5G to be deployed while avoiding harmful impacts on the aviation industry, traveling public, supply chain, vaccine distribution, our workforce, and broader economy, they said. And so how is our burgeoning technocracy doing so far? How are things going now that we rely on centralized groups of experts using 
machines and technology they clearly cannot competently use or understand. How is it all working out? We are seeing the implementation of the first stages of the Great Reset Agenda, and so far, it has been the worst experiment in human history. That is where we are. And what they're asking for is the ability to constantly do more of it and the ability to ensure that no matter how poorly it goes, they can still stay in power forever through rigged elections. Aren't you so enamored of the science and the technology and the experts? Look at it. They are saving the world. And if you can't see it, well, that's because you're not an expert. All right, guys, thank you as always for listening. Please continue to share the show. Every time you share the show with someone who might be open to it, you help me and hopefully you help them to wake up and get out of this mindset that is currently destroying society. And if you have the ability, go to ko-fi.com slash I'm your moderator. Sign up for a subscription there, whatever it is. All of it helps me so much, and it is an honor to receive your support. So thank you. I'll be back tomorrow at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic, and Joe Biden will never be president. In my mind, that's the end game. Whether you're a total newbie to podcasting, or even if you've had a show before like me, you know how intimidating it can be to start your show. The tech side especially can be daunting. That's why I'm so grateful Anchor exists. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. They knock down all the barriers to entry. Let me explain. First off, it's free. I don't know how or why, but I'm happy about it. The platform's great. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. I can't even begin to describe how much easier it was to get my show on all the major platforms this time than it was a few years ago. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. That's right. You build your show, you make money. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place, and the company is committed to the success of its content creators. Go download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Thanks for listening. Follow the podcast on the Telegram Messenger app at t.me slash I'm your moderator. You can join the discussion at t.me slash I'm reasonable. I'm also on Gab and Getter at I'm your moderator. The Substack is I'm your moderator and the merch site is cancelcouture.com. You can also go direct to that at shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. I'll see you next time out on the range.
acting as moderator for tonight's broadcast. It's high noon! In my mind, that's the end game. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can do that by downloading the Telegram Messenger app and going to t.me slash I'm your moderator. On social media, you can follow me on Truth Social, Getter, and Gab at I'm Your Moderator. I also have channels on Rumble and BitChute. If you'd like to follow the writing, you can find me at I'm Your Moderator.substack.com. The merch site is cancelcouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, the best place to do that is Kofa. Go to ko-fi.com slash I'm your moderator. And all of these details will appear in the show notes with each episode. I'll see you soon down on the range. It's hell!